This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. I don't know if you've driven along Main Street lately in front of McMaster University, but if you haven't, if you haven't seen the road there or driven along, close your eyes and picture the dark side of the moon. And I don't mean the Pink Floyd album. I mean the actual dark side of the moon. And you'll have a pretty good idea of what it's like out there. It is essentially a giant close-up of Manuel Noriega's face. It is bad. It is pockmarked. The potholes are many. They are deep. And not just there. Burlington Street, Rymel Road, Upper James, Aberdeen, other places all over the place. Maybe in your neighborhood. It's been that kind of winter. The kind of winter that chews up asphalt and spits it out and leaves people who are driving around with their cars sometimes being bashed up and with the city having to scramble to make repairs, but these cost money. This is not an inexpensive thing to do. So tomorrow at council, a motion is being brought forward to find some money to be able to make repairs, significant repairs to some of these issues. But the bigger question is, why has this happened? Is it a asphalt thing? Is it a work thing? Is it an age thing? Is it simply this kind of winter thing? Dan McKinnon is the head of public works for the city of Hamilton. Uh, he joins us now. Dan, thanks for doing this today. Hi, Scott. I forgot your literary skill at emphasizing a point. You're killing me here. <laughs> well, how many times has someone spoken to you this winter and said, Dan, you know, um, the roads are pretty rough this winter. You've heard that a few times, I bet. Oh, I wish I had a nickel for every time. <laughs> Worse, more than normal? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. This has been an extraordinary winter, um, you know, specifically on Main Street. Um, you know, one of the things that was probably informative for your listeners to know is that the worst part of Main Street in front of McMaster was actually reconstructed the last time in 1969. Wow. And then there was a shave and pave, what we call a shave and pave, where you strip off the top two inches and put a new uh, top coat down, it was done in 2005. So when you look at the life cycle profile of that section of road, that's pretty much how we would predict that it would uh, decline over that period of time. The one thing that surprised us is if you can picture a curve where it's you know, kind of slowly going down, um, it seems with that section of the road, it just came to like a vertical cliff and just and just degraded uh, extraordinarily fast this winter. So um, we're certainly not uh, we're certainly aware of it. Um, we were developing plans to deal with it uh, once the warmer weather got here. Um, but uh, some of the councillors are feeling uh, the need to, to, to expedite that. So uh, certainly understandable, and uh, we'll hear how things go at council tomorrow night to see if we get the approval to move forward with that. Well, can you explain, can you give us, for those of us like me who, who don't understand the science behind potholes, can you explain why they happen? What if I'm? Why is a pothole, why does a pothole appear here and not here? What causes the potholes to pop up in the road? Well, there, there's a number of factors that go into it. So anybody who's watched a paving crew work, you can see that there is uh, a variety of different size aggregate that is, makes up the, uh, the matrix uh, of, uh, of an asphalt layer. There's three-quarter inch stone, and then there's fine material, and then there's every size stone in between, and it's all mixed with uh, asphalt cement, a certain amount of asphalt cement. And it's only meant to last a certain period of time. And, and as I mentioned earlier, when you look at the the life cycle of that section of road, it pretty much behaved the way that we thought it would, but we thought we'd have a little more time at the end. The, you know, the, the, the science that we're talking about is called asset management, and what we do is we try to predict when are our assets, whether it's a road, a bridge, a sewer, a water main. We try to use whatever data we have to predict when it's going to come to the end of its life, and while we certainly have a lot more information and a lot more the body of knowledge on, on that is certainly greater than it was you know, 20, 30 years ago, it still can't predict with, within months when something's going to fail. So um, but this one, it's uh, and layer on top of that, I, fa- I think, is the fact that our winters are changing. And I think your listeners would, would appreciate this, that, you know, 2014, 2015, we saw two of the worst winters on record for a long, long time. So that extremely cold temperature probably damaged that road surface structure. And we may just be seeing the manifestation of that now. But in addition to that, we see a, many more freeze-thaw cycles in the winter. I know when I was a kid, you might have a January thaw and that was it. Now we seem to have five, six, ten freeze-thaw cycles in, in, in a single winter. So every time that surface thaws and then it freezes again, it just, it just, it just really, really hard on the surface and it starts to break apart those, uh, those larger pieces of aggregate. And then over time when you have the traffic pounding, then it, uh, it creates those potholes. And the other thing that you know, I should mention is that section of road is the busiest section of road. Um, if you take the link and the Red Hill out, that's the next busiest section of road in the city of Hamilton and it's likely to see, see 55,000 cars a day. So would we have been better off then? Because a lot of people think a really, really cold winter is what causes this. Would we have been better off if we just had a freeze and it just stayed there? 
Absolutely. If we got if, if we went to like minus five in the middle of December and we stayed at minus five as a daytime high, um, all the way to you know the middle of March, that's that's probably easier on the road than constantly having these 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 opportunities to thaw out and then freeze again and then thaw out and freeze again. It's those cycles uh, combined with the road, combined with the age of the road. So there's it's never a single factor. It's 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 kind of this compounding of all these different factors that will uh, will uh, essentially destroy a road surface. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show weeknights from six to eight only on 900 CHML. Chatting with Dan McKinnon, head of public works for the city. And Dan, here we were talking about, and you were mentioning before the break there about the effect of cold and everything else. We know later this week it's probably not going to make this a lot better for you. Uh, we're expecting rain later in the week, followed by a freeze. That again, the water gets into those cracks and starts to freeze and expand. It just it seems like it just doesn't get any better for you. No, and that's that's I think you're, that's characteristic of the, the modern winters that we're seeing now. And you know, if, I mean, if it goes to minus one, it's not so bad. But if it goes to you know minus five overnight, and we get a you know a long period of time where it gets an opportunity to freeze, that's when it becomes more problematic, and we'll, we'll probably start to see some of those patches that we put in those potholes start to kick out. So, you know, we got our fingers crossed, hoping that the you know the hopefully the weatherman's a little bit wrong on on, mm. on our side, and it'll stay a little milder than he's anticipating right now. Uh, for those who don't know, you have not been in this job forever. So unless anyone thinks, well, you know, all this aging infrastructure, it's all Dan's fault. Well, no, you, you, you get off the hook, I think, on this one, because this is something that you have, uh, you, you've received when you took the job. But you do mention the aging infrastructure. You have uh, Claremont access you had to fix with some of the wall falling in. And you had um, Sherman access the other day with a rock slide. And you've got a water main break earlier this week with a sinkhole and now you've got these roads to fix that's a lot of things i guess largely dan to do with aging infrastructure but it's a lot of things and they all cost a lot of money how do you how do you prioritize these things well again you're you're talking about the i'll call the science of asset management the city of hamilton owns about 20 billion dollars worth of infrastructure between water sewer roads bridges recreation centers hockey arenas city hall all of those buildings and so the idea of asset management is to say, you know, what do you own? Where is it? How much is it worth? And how fast is it going to decline? And then what you have to do is try to, you know, program enough money into each of those assets so that you can uh, get to them before they fail. So, um, you know, certainly on the road side, we've got about $5 billion worth of uh, assets that uh, would probably take, you know, for us to co- get to what we call sustainability, would probably take over $100 million a year. But, um, you know, this, 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 this community probably can't support that level of funding unless they make some dramatic changes in where they want council to spend their money. And, and this is one of the, you know, I, I, I'm not sure council gets enough credit for the, the tough decisions that they have to make because there's so many priorities that they hear from the community. I mean, today was a perfect example. There was a lot of discussion today about investing more in the HSR, and, and none of us argue about that. But there's only a limited amount of money. So asset management is trying to find that. You know, sweet spot or that balance between where can we spend the money that where we're going to get the greatest impact to extend the life of our most uh, important infrastructure. But I think between the you know municipalities, the federal government, the provincial government, we're going to have to come up with a different funding model because Hamilton's not unique in that regard. And uh, we're going to have to find more money for infrastructure because uh, if we don't uh, over the longer term, we're going to have some serious issues. But you, I mean, you mentioned that you want to do this before it breaks down. Problem would be when you're chasing all these things that have already broken down and already are going to cost a lot of money. There doesn't sound like there would be a lot of money left to do the preemptive stuff to prevent this from happening. Well, that's exactly the, the you know, that's that's our world every day. We're always constantly trying to find where, where can we try to get out ahead of some of this stuff when... I talked about the section of Main Street in front of McMaster. There's the original reconstruction where you dig right down and you put all new gravel. That's a full-blown recon. But you also have other interventions where you can do a shave and pave and crack ceiling, and you try to time those at the perfect moment where it's going to extend the life of that infrastructure for the longest period of time. So when we did that in 2005, it bought us another 12 years. So you're constantly evaluating each segment of road and trying to time those uh, those different interventions. And we're, you know, we're constantly looking at new technologies and new approaches, but... I think, generally speaking, we know that um, the amount of money that we're putting into those that infrastructure now probably isn't enough. And I know that council, you know, they do their best to try to increase that every year. Every year for the last number of years, they've been they've been increasing the the capital allotment with a, a 0.5 percent increase over the uh, the levy budget, which is a pretty sizable amount. And they've been doing that for years. So, 
you know, it's it's difficult to do anything in big steps, but I, I think they've been, you know, they've been trying to kind of inch their way towards get sustainability. I'm just not sure we're going to get there fast enough. Just before I let you go, because I know you've got, got to go back into a meeting. Um, we got all these things that are going on. We, we go back to the roads for a minute. The story today that was in the spec.com, people can read it by Matthew Van Donjen, points out that the city's head of risk management says there have been more claims filed than ever before for damages to cars. Now, some of those are driver error, driver fault, but some of those are probably caused by the road. When you start getting claims and damages and specific things, does that move? Does someone come to you and say, Dan, that we got to move this one now to the front of the line. We, we got to get this done because it's not just the road now that's going to cost us money. It's repairs to other stuff. Do you get direction are you the guy who chooses entirely or do you get direction from people saying no this has got to be fixed first before we get to this and this and this so risk management claims is is part of our uh, evaluation criteria i think this year it'll probably may have play a more important role just because of the you know what appears to be an extraordinary kind of event happening here so that uh that's something that where we will bring that information to council or they will ask us for a report on it but it's definitely going to be going into some of the proposals that we're going to be making over the next week or two with council is that, you know, risk management, risk management claims are indicative of something. And and that's certainly an important evaluation criteria to lead us to whatever solutions we're going to present. Dan McKinnon, head of public works, uh, a very busy guy these days. Really appreciate you taking some time for us. My pleasure, Scott. Anytime. That is uh, boy, if you're driving along there, you'll understand, but it is, where do you start? If you, if you're him, and I got a lot of time for Dan. He does, a, he does a good job. And as I say, he inherited a lot of stuff. If you're the head of public works and you've got Claremont Access falling in, you've got Sherman rock slides, you've got sinkholes because of pipes bursting, you've got roads, and you've got limited budget, where do you start? Where do you begin? It's not like there's one or two issues that he has to resolve or the public works department has to resolve. This is a serious issue we have in this city. Not to mention that we have to fix other things, that we have maintenance on buildings. And this is why I've argued, honestly, this is why I've argued for so long, it is time for us to put a moratorium on building new, fancy, shiny things. Let's fix and maintain what we have. If something is cheaper to rebuild, rebuild it. But otherwise, let's fix what we have because we are falling way, way, way behind. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Peace in the spec today and on the spec.com. You can read it there. It's still up there if you wish. Uh, Outlined that the food industry in this country is facing some tough times, tougher than usual times across Canada. Now, part of this, as explained in this piece, is that... Places like Amazon, which haven't come here yet, but there's the threat of this, are beginning to spread their tentacles into the grocery industry, and that could be something that is uh, becomes very scary. We'll get to that in a minute. But there are other influences as well, including one that is going to bring us into something which potentially and probably will become a little bit political. You don't usually get your politics involved in your food, but in this one, it might just be that. Because a couple months ago, January 1st, when Ontario's minimum wage increase came in, the spike that a lot of people talked about. Some said that it was going to crush business, that the cost to business were going to be just way too much to be able to absorb in short fashion. Others said this is going to be a terrific thing that is going to bring up the lowest earners and really prop up the economy and make everybody better. A rising tide raises all boats kind of thing. Well, the author of the piece that is on the spec.com about the food industry. Uh, and my next guest seems to suggest that the wage increase, the minimum wage increase is having an effect, but it's the former, not the latter. It is causing some issues, perhaps. Dr. Sylvain Charlebois is the Dean of the Faculty of Management and a professor in the Faculty of Agriculture at Dalhousie University. He's also a senior fellow with the Atlantic Institute for Market Studies and the author of Food Safety, Risk Intelligence and Benchmarking. Uh, Dr. Charlebois joins me now. Doctor, thanks for doing this tonight. Hey, good evening. Uh, let's walk through this so I can understand this because, you know, I, this is economics and I'm a little slow sometimes when it comes to this. <laughs> you say right off the bat that in this country right now, this year, food inflation is up. What does that mean? Well, essentially, it's going to cost more to eat, uh, generally speaking. Now, the food inflation rate currently, according to StatsCan, uh, is at 23 that's the highest point since April of 2016. And if you actually look at 
a graph, uh, you can see that food inflation is actually moving up right now. So it is highly likely that in February and March, uh, food inflation is going to go up, which means that it's going to cost more to buy food. But there is a good economy between food retailing and food service. Okay, so we're going to get to that. I just want to work through this piece by piece just so everyone understands, including myself. If food inflation is going up, you write that this is generally a good thing for those selling food, correct? Oh, absolutely. You need uh, the, the the proverbial sweet spot for uh, for the food industry is to have um, uh, food inflation uh, to sit anywhere between 1.5 to 2.5 percent. On the one hand, you get uh, you basically inject more wealth into the system for for the food industry to uh, do research, improve the quality. Uh, do things that they do well, but even better. On the other hand, it is a reasonable rate for consumers to cope with. Uh, we're not talking because at some point over the last decade, the food inflation was over four, five, even six percent. That's unsustainable, especially for for uh, for households with less means. And as often is the food inflation the result of costs to the food providers, or is it simply them raising their prices for higher profits? Yeah, so with food processing or distribution, energy costs are a big driver. Labor, obviously, is a big one. Uh, In food service, it boils down to two things, food costs and labor. And so those are the big ticket items there. So depending on what happens with the economy, uh, you do see prices go either up or down. But I'll be honest with you, they rarely go down. They either stagnate mm. or they go up. But you point out in this piece then, so we've got food inflation that's going up. The cost of food is going up, which should mean good things for the retailers and for those who are selling the food. Yet Loblaw, for example, actually has lower revenues already this year. Why then? If the, if the prices are going up, why are their revenues going down? Well, it boils down to cost. There's a couple of things that actually happened in, in, the, in Loblaw's uh, fourth quarter that was just uh, published last week. Uh, so they had to merge both loyalty points, so they actually had to take the hit there. But if you actually look at store traffic and top-line revenues, basically revenues, sales generated from food retailing, uh, actually same-store sales went up 0.5%, which is really nothing. If you, if you consider that... Food inflation has gone up 2.3%, and in food retailing, 1.7%, and sales at Loblaw went up 0.5%. It means that foot traffic inside Loblaw stores is actually decreasing, and that's a problem for the company. And you point to one specific food as an example, again, that tomatoes, for some reason, have gone up by 30%. (laughs) Why? First of all, why tomatoes, and why would a particular food spike like that? I, I hope that most of your listeners do not like tomatoes. The problem is that most Canadians do like tomatoes. It's 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 the most popular produce. Now that that product went up thirty percent in a month, not in a year, in one month. That was a huge spike. My my guess is that uh, grocers were were just desperate for for higher margins and uh, knowing that. Uh, that demand for tomatoes, particularly in the winter, is robust. They basically just decide to, because the dollar, in January, February, we do import a lot of produce, given the fact that we're in the winter time right now. Uh, and the dollar really was stable versus the greenback. So one would think, well, prices should be stable in fruit and vegetable sections, but they weren't. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Chatting with Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, who is a food expert and a professor of the Dean of the Faculty of Management in the Faculty of Agriculture at Dalhousie University, about the price of food. If you've been to the store lately, you've probably noticed food prices up a bit, or maybe a lot. If you're buying tomatoes, as we said before the break, they're up 30% in the last month. So don't eat tomatoes, I guess, is the message there. I'm not really sure. Anyway, Dr. Charlebois, so we, we... We've got these prices that are edging up, but revenues are going down. That points, as you say, to 
maybe more than one idea, but certainly one area that you identify, and that is that we've had in Ontario and some other provinces spikes in minimum wage that have gone up very quickly. Is that really the problem? Uh, Part of it. I I do think that uh, wages uh, have been a factor so far in 2018. If you look at food service, for example, um, there there is a difference, of course, between uh, full service at restaurants, so restaurants offering full service, and fast food. In the fast food sector, we all know a lot of people do earn uh, the minimum wage, and prices have gone up 1.9% versus 1.0.5%, uh, where service uh, food is served at your table. So it means that really uh, the hike in, uh, with the minimum wage actually has affected, uh, has affected the bottom line of many restaurant owners out there, particularly in Ontario. But we've seen restaurant owners, restaurateurs who have come out uh, and said, look, I support the living wage, I support the minimum wage increase, uh, we are going to raise our prices to be able to pay for our staff, and you're just going to have to pay those prices. We've seen those people, and they've been applauded in, in many quarters. And I suppose that's a you know that's one way of doing it. I'm wondering if that's sustainable, though. Is there going to come a point when people are going to say, you know, I, I just can't go out as much to eat because I just don't, if the prices are up, I'll still go out. I just can't do it as often. That's right. Well, people are going out, and more often, uh, to be honest. Now, fast food is more expensive, and uh, casual dining is a little more expensive, but not that much. Is that bad news? I'm not sure, because, of course, uh, we all want to eat well. Uh, cheap calories uh, are, are now more expensive. So a lot of dietitians and nutritionists out there are actually celebrating this hike because we may actually entice consumers to make different choices when it comes to eating out. So has the minimum so if this is part of it, if this is driving it, will a minimum wage increase if this brings prices up is this simply going to cause us to have to reevaluate a lot of things and say okay, instead of buying this and this, I'm going to buy my food and it's going to be good food. Well, exactly. So you're actually giving consumers a choice, but just going back to the food service industry, my concern is uh, is related to restaurant owners uh, in rural Ontario, in smaller towns, mom-and-pop shops that really can't afford to increase their, uh, their, their labor costs, really. And, and they may not be able to increase menu prices either. That's really, those are the companies hurting right now as a result of a higher minimum wage. And we're not talking, we often focus on on Hamilton or Toronto or markets like that, but we don't necessarily look at small town restaurants, and they're hurting. Do we? I mean, is that anecdotal, or do do we know that? Do, I mean, do we hear these stories, or is there something to back up the fact that these increases have hurt those stores, those restaurants? Well, rarely people will brag that they're actually going bankrupt. And of course, <laughs> a lot true. of people may say, "Well, it's just bad management." But at the end of the day, it's just added pressure to to a high-pressure industry, we all know that four restaurants out of five don't survive the first five years. With that increase, increasing the minimum wage by 32% in one year is irresponsible. Like you said, no one is against people earning a decent living, but that hike, 32% in one year, is very hard to manage for many small businesses. Do you get a sense, though, We, I mean, you're... Um you're out east, so you don't see it as closely, but I know you follow the news. When this all happened we're, here... We're affected by what's going on in Ontario. Don't get me wrong. Every province is looking at, looking at Ontario as a laboratory to look at how an economy looks like with a minimum wage of $15. Same goes with Alberta in a few months. So when the minimum wage came in and Tim Hortons ended up in the eye of a tornado of bad PR based on what they did... Do you get the, I mean, when you talk about restaurants that may be struggling, are, are restaurants scared to raise, to say anything or to not raise their prices or to, has that put a, a chilling effect on a lot of other places and they just may deal with it? Some, some restaurants can cope better than others. That's, that's the reality. There are going to be restaurants 
who are going to have to close. Whether or not it's because of the of a higher minimum wage is very always always hard to to tell. But at the end of the day, it's added pressure to to really family businesses. A lot of great restaurants in Ontario. I know I've lived there for many years and. And there are a lot of small restaurants with secret recipes and, and family, family traditions being sold from one generation to another. And that could go to waste as a result of this added pressure, that sudden added pressure. Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, really, really appreciate the time as always. Thanks for doing this. No problem. Take care. It's a, it's a tricky one. And you know, it's going to be really interesting to see because you have two situations here. You've, you've, we all have to eat. We all have to have food. And if the prices are going up, but we are choosing as a result to spend our money on food and we'll live with the prices of food, then so be it. Maybe that's a positive thing. We're going to have to see, though, where those restaurants, how those restaurants do. Because remember, in January, end of January, we had uh, job numbers that showed a huge drop-off in part-time jobs, specifically part-time jobs in Ontario. And that was chalked up to seasonal Christmas stuff. Well, we're going to see very soon what happens with February job numbers. And specifically, or partially anyway, in the food business, we will see, was the minimum wage increase having a deleterious effect? Did it actually affect people negatively, or is it really nothing? Has that drop-off really been seasonal, and that's the end of it? We're going to find that out very, very soon. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Today was federal budget day, as you know. The federal liberals, Bill Morneau, putting out the latest budget. And it is, as someone wrote, an analyst already wrote, it's hard to even call this one a budget per se. It's more of a let's give every single group that falls into the liberal voting categories a little something. That's not what we're going to get into. But I do, there is a couple things. And we talked to Marvin Ryder last night on the show. And I hope you listened to that. If you didn't, if you missed it, you can go online at 900chml.com. You can find the podcast from yesterday. You can hear Marvin uh, always on top of everything. And one of the things we asked about it, and there is difference of opinion on this. Marvin is is not terribly concerned at this point. For whatever reason, I tend to be a little more so. I trust Marvin, but we have different points of view on these kind of things on at least one issue. The fact that we are continuing to have huge deficit budgets concerns me. I don't know if it concerns you, but the government, they put out a budget that is going to be $18.1 billion, a deficit of $18.1 billion. And what is concerning to me about this, and again, you may share this, you may not share this view, is that we're looking what's going on down in the States where the economy is going pretty well right now. Whether you like Donald Trump, don't like Donald Trump, can't stand Donald Trump, whatever, the things that he's done down there for commercial tax breaks to bring money back from offshore, to invest in businesses, all these things, the economy seems to be going very well for them. You also have uncertainty about what's going to happen with NAFTA. You've now got other comments being made that has thrown into question some things about our trade, some things about our economy. We don't really know what's going to happen with the Canadian economy right now. We like to believe that it's going to hum along and that everything's going to be fantastic and that we're always going to be doing well, but we don't know. And it seems to me to be... I don't want to use the word careless. I don't want to use the reckless. It's not that, but it is concerning that we continue to add more and more and more, that we continue to run deficits and get ourselves into a position that could be difficult if things, as they may well, there are people who are predicting both sides, that the Canadian government, the Canadian economy is going to continue on or that the Canadian economy is going to slow down. It is concerning to me that we put ourselves in this position. And here's why. Because one thing we know, No government likes to give something to a group and then retract it. They just don't do that. They don't do it. If there is a budget and government of whatever stripe or whatever color, it could be the conservatives, it could be the liberals, we haven't had an NDP. If they give something to some group, 
they don't want to pull that back because they're going to lose the votes that they may have got for giving those things. And look, let's be honest. Every government that does anything for any people group or any whatever is to get votes. Let's, let's not be stupid about this. That's what this is about. It's about maintaining power. You can argue that we really believe in making the world a better place, and maybe you do, but ultimately it's about let's keep the power and let's give the money and direct the money to the places where it's going to be the most useful to us. So you don't want to pull that money back. So when we now are running $18 billion deficit budgets, if the economy slows down, we don't want to have to pull that stuff back. So you got two options then. You go further into debt and you end up like the senior Trudeau did by the end of his time as prime minister, where the country was swimming in debt. We had so much debt, it took decades to get out of it. That was not a good thing. Or what do you do? You raise taxes again on people because we have to continue to pay for these programs. We're not going to cut the programs. We're going to tax you more to pay for these programs. Neither one is ideal, specifically, particularly when you don't have to be doing this. We are not in a time in the economy when everything must be propped up because things are so difficult. We are in a good time, and yet we're creating these situations that are positioning us to potentially be facing very difficult times down the road. I tend to be more small-c conservative when it comes to economics and finances. I would prefer for us, and I think a lot of other people would too, not everybody, but a lot of other people, I would prefer for us to be in a position where we can weather a storm if and when it comes, and the storm could be coming from the states with NAFTA and with everything else we don't know yet. This budget, to me, is another example of putting money into vote buying as opposed to truly looking after the economy of the country. Every government does it. But if we're going to have a prime minister who likes to tell us that he is different, that it's sunny ways, that everything is different from previous governments, I would like some of that to be displayed rather than the actions being exactly the same as what he says he's against. But here we go, another deficit. And wait till the next one when it's election time and now we have to give away all the goodies. Wait till you see what that one's going to be. Hopefully our economy is still humming along to be able to pay for that. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Surely you watched the Canada-U.S. women's hockey final the other day. Probably you watched many or most or all of the women's games from there. It was a terrific team, a terrific tournament. If you did, as I said a moment ago, you are by now probably just as sour as I am on shootouts uh, and as the rest of every Canadian is. It's a stupid, unsatisfying, unacceptable, unnecessary way to end an otherwise terrific game that they should have just kept playing until there was a winner, but that's a little rant. Uh, Regardless, that's what international hockey does, and this time, unfortunately, it ended up biting Canada. My next guest was not only part of that game, but was chosen, as I said a moment ago, as one of the two best defensemen in the tournament, which by definition, when this is the tournament, makes her, I think, I believe, one of the two best defensemen in all of women's hockey the world over. Her name is Laura Fortino. She is from Ancaster. She joins me now. Laura, thanks for doing this today. No problem. Uh, let's go there first, by the way. Congratulations on that all-star nod. That is a, uh, that's a huge, huge thing to be one of those two. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it's like you said, it's pretty humbling to be chosen as one of the best defensemen in the world at, uh, on the biggest stage at the Olympics. And uh, I think for me, it's quite an honor. And I, uh, I couldn't have done it with the incredible uh, team behind me. Were you able to enjoy it at that moment, though, because I know it was a, you know, a, I won't even say bittersweet. It was probably just bitter, but w- were you able to enjoy that moment at all? I don't think so, as much as I wanted to, knowing how great of an honor it was. Uh, even a few days after, you know, the team honored me and, and mentioned it and all over the media, but even then, it kind of didn't really set in, and it wasn't kind of at the forefront of my mind. <laughs> I just I just think that game was still still on my mind over everything. Can can you enjoy it a little bit now? Like as as the days, and we're still not far away, but as the days go past, do you start to realize what a big deal that was, that that honor? Yeah, I think so as the days move forward and kind of many people telling me, you know, how how great that was. And uh, I think for me, like I said, it is quite an honor and uh, I'm just so grateful to be honored in that way. I've talked to you a lot over the years, and uh, it is hard to get you to say much complimentary about yourself. 
But I'm wondering, do you, I mean, can you picture yourself? Do you see yourself as one of the two de- best defensemen in the world? <laughs> yeah, I think it's going to continue. I'm not going to say too much. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, like I said, I mean, I couldn't have done it without my incredible teammates that push me every single day to not only be a great player, but a, an even better person. And all my coaches and everyone who helps me along the way to be the best I can and to help me prepare to be the best I can. And I'm someone that's very motivated each and every day to, to be the best. And I want to for my teammates. And um, I just think that's something I'll always pride myself on. Let's go back to the game, although you probably don't want to, because uh, it sounds like it's, it's still a little bit hard to swallow. We're not that far away. It's still a little bit difficult probably to think about. Yeah, I mean, if you think of it for us, it's a four-year cycle, and we worked so hard for that one single moment in that game, and we want to walk away with the gold medal because that's what we, we dream of and we work so hard for. But, uh, yeah, I mean, right now it, it is very disappointing, especially the way it ended in, in a shootout. But, um, I mean, in the long run, we're going to be so proud of our silver medal, and um, any Olympian would be proud of that medal, and we're, we're proud that we are able to bring a medal back for Canada. Were you, honestly, before this game, were you a fan of shootouts or would you prefer just to keep playing and let the players decide it? Yeah, 100%. I don't think I've ever been a, a fan of shootouts. And if you look at the NHL and, and the Stanley Cup Finals, they would never go down to that and they just keep playing and playing until there's a winner. And, you know, I really hope in some way maybe that role can change at the Olympics because uh, it is very disappointing to end that way, knowing how hard every athlete works for that moment. And, um, yeah, I've never been a fan of that. And now you, you knew, I guess, by the time the shootout started that you were probably, I, I don't know what might have led to you shooting. You probably had figured you weren't going to be taking a shot. So you just have to stand on the bench and watch, I guess. Is that, is, I mean, do you sort of, at that moment, I guess your Olympics basically are over. You're now a spectator. Yeah. If you want to say it like that, it, it was probably one of the most agonizing, painful moments and just. It's so hard to put into words how you feel on that bench, and we're, you're just rooting so hard for your teammates and uh, the shooters that are going and hoping, you know, they can score for us. But uh, I'm proud of all the shooters that went. They they truly tried their best, and some of the goals they did score were, were amazing for us. And Zabby did absolutely incredible in the net all game and even in the shootout. And like I said, it's just tough to weigh that in. It's one shot and one goal and one person doing it, so... I mean, it was very tough to watch, and but uh, did you watch? Did you actually watch, or was your head down? We couldn't see. I couldn't see from the replays. <laughs> I, I was I was in the corner on the bench, literally just. I it was hard to watch, and I just watched here and there. But as my, when our teammates won, I I watched hundred percent. But when they were going, it was it was hard to watch. That's for sure. Is it quiet on the bench when that is going on, or is there a lot of chatter? Like, what, what's it like in the moment like that? I think it just tense, like it's so tense. I mean, everyone just, we're holding on to each other. We're just, you're literally just hoping for the best. And it was kind of quiet. I mean, when our shooters went, we kind of piped up and cheered for them and kind of yelling their name and just trying to get excited and not stress them out as, as probably as stressed as they were going out in front of all those people in front of the entire world shooting. But uh, I mean, that's all you can really do in that moment. Would you have wanted to be one of the shooters? I mean, if it came down to it and I got the call, yeah, 100%, I, I would have gone and done whatever I could for this team and hopefully have scored. I imagine before every big game, and this was a big game, it always is the gold medal game, and you've been in two of them now at the Olympics, that there are nerves. I can't imagine that you are totally without nerves when you're getting ready to play. There has to be some, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. I think those nerves are, as you gain more experience and you're more involved in those games over the many Olympics. I think it's more excitement and the passion that we have. I, th- I don't think if you didn't have that, then I don't think you're quite normal. You're, but, you're uh, not human if you don't have something. Yeah, you're not human. So, I mean, yeah, it's just more of the excitement and um, just that anxious feeling to get out there and to play. And like I said, that's what we work so hard for. And for us, that's our Stanley Cup, and that's what we want. And we're so driven and passionate for. So uh, to get up for those games, it's incredible. So how describe if you can the difference in the nerves or the feeling or whatever you want to describe it as before the game when you're ready to go out because you're going to have nerves then and when again when they're clearing the ice before the shootout is it a completely different kind of feeling uh i think so because i feel when you're going into the game like you have control you can dictate the plays you can dictate how kind of your shifts are going to go and whatnot but i feel like in the shootout it's kind of like a hopeless feeling you're just sitting there relying on somebody else, relying on your teammates, relying on the goalie. And 
not really. You can't. You kind of lost control at that point. So I mean, yeah, they are kind of two different feelings. That's for sure. I guess you'd know a little bit what a coach feels like now. Yeah. I mean, honestly, yeah, the coaches exactly, always yeah. say, oftentimes coaches will say that it's harder to be a coach than a player in moments like that because you can't do anything about it. No, no. They prepare us the best they can, but at the end of the day, it's us players that are playing out on that ice. Uh, when you did see the winning goal go in, or did did you actually see it or just hear it when the winning goal went in? No, yeah, we, we saw it, yeah. You, said you were looking up at that point? Yeah, I was. What? I mean, honestly, what goes through your mind because it's... Well, tell me, I mean, what, what, what do you think of at that moment, if anything? I mean, at that moment, it's just more, I think I, I instantly cried and just uh, with my teammates and looking out at all of them and knowing that, you know, we didn't win and we didn't achieve what we set out to achieve at the beginning of the year. And um, it, I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking. It really is. But, um, you know, now that we can look back on it, I'm proud, so proud of everyone and how we played and, we knew we battled hard and fought right to the end, and it kind of was out of our hands at that point. So, But uh, like I said, it was just an awful moment. Uh, I don't think any athlete wants to go through that moment. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's very difficult. But I think it's very unique to women's hockey. I really do. Because you mentioned a few moments ago, this is the moment every four years. I mean, you have World Championships, and you have Four Nations Cup, and you have other things that you're doing but I don't think there's, a, is there another sport? Is there another uh, situation where you basically work four years for one game? Because everyone expects it's going to be Canada and the States in the in the championship mm-hmm. game. You've put four years, and you've been on both sides now. You've had that elation of setting up the winning goal and being on the ice when you won, and now you've experienced the other. I, I don't know there's another sport that has that. Yeah, I'm not sure, but... Uh... Yeah, I think that's what makes women's hockey, and for us, it makes that moment so much more special um, and rewarding if you do win. And um, But, I mean, for us, we're, we're not really looking as as a defeat or, or anything at that point. It wasn't really um, – I know it's not really what we set out for, but at the end of the day, we did walk away with a medal for our country. And a silver medal, I think any athlete at the Olympics would love to have and bring home for their country. And Talking to a lot of the other athletes after our game, they knew how disappointing we were, but they said, you know, you have a medal around your neck. Like, mm. Be grateful and be honored for that because there would be tons of athletes here who would love to walk away with even just a medal, let alone a silver medal. So You were probably watching the World Juniors uh, back around Christmas time, I guess, when the, uh, the guy from Sweden went and chucked his <laughs> into the crowd. Now, you obviously aren't doing it, but... Will you take the silver medal out of the box? Will you cherish that as an Olympic medal, or is it difficult to look at it like that? Uh, no, I mean, the first couple of days, I, I didn't really look at it that way, but like I think every moment I will cherish of that medal. And when I look at that medal, I think of all my amazing teammates, all the hard work we did put in, and um, just the, the opportunity to even be at the Olympics representing your country. And I'll never look at that medal any way different than my gold medal. Um, I think to me, I value them the same and, um, all the heart and work that gets put into even winning a medal. That's how I, I look at that. Well, there is certainly something to that, Laura, that you've, you've, the four years that probably that medal encapsulates four years of Mm -hmm. chasing that and spending time with the team and all that kind of stuff that goes on with your team. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think this year too, especially with the team we had, the special bond that we had and the commodity and just everything they made it a joy to come to the rink every single day and um the memories we shared all all year long and at the olympics i'm certainly going to cherish forever and that's that's kind of what i look back on and when i look at that medal that's what i'm really gonna remember other than the ending was being there a second time at the olympics a second time was it very different from you did it make the experience very different uh yeah i think so in a in a, in a few different ways i mean when you have the experience you know kind of what to expect, but at the same time, too, every Olympics writes their own story. Every Olympics is unique in its own way, and uh, Pyeongchang was so very different than Sochi, and How? I loved all the different How? dynamics that it brought. I mean, the culture, um, the food, the village, um, just everything about it was, was very different, and, uh, you know, we had to travel a lot more to the venues uh, rather than in Sochi. Everything was kind of close by. Uh, you just biked or walked. Rather, here, we had to bus to the rink, and different things like that. So just the dynamic of it was very different. But, you know, the the vibe and the energy and the passion within the village is all is all the same. And meeting all the different athletes from all the different countries is always the second best thing at the Olympics. It's, it's amazing experience hearing their stories and everything. And 
Um, I, I loved every moment of it. Um, I thought it was great. It was very well done. Um, and it was a great, unique experience. What happens in the Athletes' Village with that? If you're, if you're in the dining room and you sit down and I don't know how often you're actually just by yourself and you bump into someone from another country, do you, do you just sit at the table and say, hey, I'm Laura and I play hockey for Canada? Like, how do you introduce yourself? What do you say? How does it work like that to know what the other person does? Yeah, I mean, I think in the cast, especially, that's where the best place is to meet, place to, to meet other athletes and interact with them. And, um, you know, I try to sit with different people, or, and we're always with our teammates, so I try to sit at different tables where there's other countries and whatnot. And you kind of just, you're eating, and you kind of just start a normal conversation and whatnot, and then you start asking questions, and they start asking, and um, what sport you play, kind of how many Olympics you've been to, or how you enjoying your experience, sort of different questions like that, but... Uh, yeah, I, I tried to really get out there and meet other people and kind of hear their stories because I think that's what it's all about also. And you're kind of all in this one little bubble together. And it's a pretty unique to be Olympi- an Olympic, uh, you know, Olympian and kind of just uh, interact and hear all those things. It, it's pretty awesome. I really thought before these games and even during them that the women's game, that hockey for women was going to get a huge boost by the fact that there was no NHL players at this, just because the spotlight was going to be more and more on you than when you bring in a bunch of the most famous winter athletes in the world, they kind of suck up all the oxygen in the room. They just do. (laughs) Did you get the sense that there was more attention focused on women's hockey this time? Um. I'm not sure in, in how many, in a few ways, but uh, I'm not sure. I think the guys team that was there, they, they were awesome to be around and to see how they embraced their, their moments and they were so grateful for everything to even be there. But uh, I think we support each other the same and all the other athletes kind of treated, uh, treated everyone the same, no matter if they were NHLers or not. But it was funny because a few in the, in the calf were, you know, you know, you'd hear them talking, oh, I wish Cindy Crosby was here. I wish, <laughs> you know, so-and-so was here. I wanted to meet them. But, you know, I kind of felt bad in some ways for the men's team when, you know, they have to hear that. But at the end of the day, I think everyone gets treated the same. We're all at the same level when you're at the Olympics. Everyone's an Olympian. But, um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I hope, you know, I think our game in general is just so exciting. And if you look at both, you know, the last two Olympics, they've come down to a shootout and in overtime. And I just think that goes to show how amazing and how much our game has grown. And I think we, every year, the viewers just keep getting higher and higher. And that's kind of what we're aiming for. You did mention about meeting people on the calf at the Athletes Village. Did you ever bump into any of the American players? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you see them in your sights and you, you see them around and you just kind of give a high, but there's really no... Um, full conversation or uh, kind of <laughs> so, how are things going. We kind of mind our own, mind our own when we're competing um, at that moment. But, uh, you know, we're friendly. We say hi here and there, but we keep it pretty uh, low-key. Because, you know, when, when you watch the round-robin game and the championship, it looks like you guys really, beyond a cliche, really don't like each other all that much. And I'm wondering when people are watching, are you in the cafeteria all just having a great old time together? It sounds like, no, there really is some... What's the word? Hard feeling? Bad blood? I don't know what the right word is, but there, there's something there between the two of you. Yeah, I mean, they're a rival. Um, I think the passion and intensity that we have amongst each other is, is so high. And if you, you know, I talk about how we train for four years and all year long for that one moment, so do they. They want the same thing. They have the same dreams as us. And I think when you're going against, going up against someone that has the exact same dream, I think that intensity is, uh, it's un- indescribable. I mean, you can't really describe it because it's, it's so heated, uh, so passionate, and even if you look at our first round robin game against U.S., it got pretty heated. I thought you guys were going to have a brawl at the end. <laughs> I, I mean, I was honestly yeah. thinking you may. If I thought if the championship game, no kidding, if the championship game ended up being a blowout one way or the other, it could get yeah. really, really chippy. Mm-hmm. It, and I just goes. I think it makes that's what makes it exciting, and it's so passionate. And I think every time we play each other, it feels like the gold medal game because that's how excited are we are to play each other i mean it's best on best and when you're playing the best i mean that's kind of the result you're going to get is just an incredible game of hockey in women's hockey i hate to ask this because it sounds is there trash talking is there as much trash talking as we might think there might be when those scrums are going on no more than you think (laughs) (laughs) really yeah no i mean yeah we you know things are said here and there and i mean it's it's just the intensity and everyone's emotions and um we're just the same (laughs) You now, what, uh, you're back uh, just a few days now. What what happens for Laura Fortino now? Do you take some time off, or are you right back on the ice? 
no, no, I'm going to take some time here for myself. Mentally and physically, I'm pretty exhausted. So uh, we head out back to Calgary in, in March for a debrief and um, just a few things with the team. And then uh, soon enough, I'll be back into full-time training. Um, I think I'm going to commit my next four years to, to competing in other Olympics. So now that's going to be my focus. And I would hope so. You're still way too young not to. <laughs> Thank you. No, I mean, honestly, it, it's, it's, you, I would think that when you're in your position, while I, I certainly understand the mental fatigue and the exhaustion and everything else, to be able to look and say, you know, this opportunity doesn't last forever, mm-hmm. um, that you would try to squeeze out as many of these as you possibly can, I would think. Yeah, for sure. I mean, once I, I started in competing, I just said to myself, I'm never going to stop until, um, until I know I can. And, I have the passion right now and I have, you know, I, I just know in my heart that I can get, I have a lot more to give and I'll, I'll know when the right day comes where I, I need to stop. But I think right now I, um, I'm just in my prime. I feel like, and I've just started. Absolutely. Uh, and I have a lot more to give and give more to this country and team Canada. And, uh, like, like I said, I'm going to, you know, commit myself to another four years and hopefully get another chance to, to compete in Beijing. I don't know too many people who are more, motivated and driven than you anyway, but I'm wondering if the ending of that game has even cranked that up a little bit more for four years down the road. Uh, I think so 100% and I hope it did in every single one of my teammates. I mean, um, I just think I'm more determined than ever and more, like you said, more motivated to, to, to be even better, to train harder in the gym and to kind of leave no stone unturned so that we give our, ourselves another great opportunity to compete for a gold medal and bring it back to Canada. Well, listen, I think everybody here who was watching uh, back home was exceedingly proud of the way you played and the way your team played, but specifically you, again, making it to be named as one of the two top defensemen. That's a, uh, that's a remarkable achievement. And, um, you know, considering where you started, which was, you know, playing triple-A boys, a double-A, triple-A boys hockey. I mean, it's, it's, and that was not that long ago and it, it's been a journey, but man, oh man, you've, you've, you've done very, very well. And, and everyone here was watching and feeling very proud. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Laura Fortino from Canada's Olympic women's hockey team, silver medalist to go with her gold medal and future gold medalist again. Laura, thanks for doing this. Thank you. No problem. That is, um, that is one of Can- uh, one of Canada's, yes, absolutely, but one of Hamilton's great athletes. You know, we just had the Golden Horseshoe Athlete of the Year Award handed out last week. Michelle Fazari, who's a wrestler, won that one this time. I got to believe Laura has been a finalist before. I've got to believe that uh, Laura may well be back in that mix next year with her performance at these Olympics. Not a gold, understand, but um, certainly not of her doing. And I go back to my point, if they hadn't done that stupid shootout and Laura was actually on the ice with the rest of her team, we may be talking about a different result altogether, but it is what it is. I'll, I'll, I'll leave that rant alone again. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.